The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and war fighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is August 19th, 2020. And on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the USAHEC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the 2020 Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. We welcome listeners from all over the world to tonight's live stream lecture event. Remember that you can submit a question for our question and answer at the end of the lecture by either emailing the main USAHEC email address or by sending us a note on Facebook. To find our email address after the lecture has started, you can either copy it down very quickly right now from your screen or go to the AHEX website. That's www.usahec.org. From there, you'll get redirected to our website. Scroll down to the bottom and you'll see our contact email information. So we are monitoring the email for questions to be uh, put out during the Q&A at the end of the lecture. Uh, in addition, you can go to our Facebook page. If you just go to your Facebook account and search USAHEC on your computer or your phone, uh, you'll be able to call up uh, the USAHEC Facebook page. Simply hit the messenger button uh, and send us a message directly. Again, I am monitoring the, uh, the Facebook page so that we can uh, be sure to field your questions from there as well. And feel free to go ahead and bring, uh, send in questions uh, even during the lecture, and we'll get to those at the very end. So the AHEC and the U.S. Army War College sponsor this perspective series to provide a historical dimension to the exercise of generalship, strategic leadership, and the warfighting institutions of land power. It's my great honor tonight to introduce our speaker, Dr. Andrew Marble is a writer, an editor, an independent scholar, and he earned his PhD in political science from Brown University, an MA in law and diplomacy from Tuft University's Fletcher School, and a BA in East Asian Studies from Middlebury College. His latest biography about General John Shalikashvili was written in partnership with the Association of the U.S. Army uh, and is a part of the American Warrior series from the University Press of Kentucky. Dr. Andrew Marble was also an editor at the National Bureau of Asia Re Asian Research, the founding editor of Asia Policy, and currently serves as the outreach editor for the Taiwan Journal of Democracy. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Dr. Andrew Marble. Dr. Marble, take it away. It was the wee hours one April night in 1945, and there's a boy out on a bridge in the Bavarian village of Pappenheim in southern Germany. Despite a mop of blonde hair and piercing blue eyes, he's not German. He's stateless, in fact, a citizen of no country, because he was born in Poland to parents who weren't Polish. He's also a refugee. During the Warsaw Uprising, his family's apartment was hit by a dive bomber and came crumbling down around them, forcing them to live in cellars and move through sewers for weeks on end. When the uprising finally ended, he and his family grabbed whatever belongings they could carry and fled here to Pappenheim in October 1944 to live off the charity of relatives. Yet the refugee boy had yet to find safe haven, for the end of the war was approaching, 
and reports had been filtering in that Allied troops were descending southward into Bavaria. So earlier this evening, the local militia had gathered up all able-bodied Pappenheimers and told them to report here to the Altmuhl River on the north side of town. Dismantle the Altmuhl Bridge, they commanded. Slow down the advance of the enemy. As the refugee boy labored alongside the Pappenheimers, thin arms of youth set against thick decking planks of old, he could not have felt more alone. His father had gone off to fight in service of the German military, and the family had since lost all contact with him. His mother was also absent, likely out on yet another frantic search for news of her husband's whereabouts. The Pappenheimers continued working anxiously through the night, caught between the dark skies above and the cold depths of the Altmuhl River below, between the watchful eyes of SS officers on the riverbank behind and their fear that Allied bombs or artillery may, might rain down from the skies in front. Yet, as morning drew near, the bridge lay only partially disassembled. Not long after dawn's first glimmer, the refugee boy paused his efforts. He glanced across the river, and that's when he saw them. There, on the opposing bank, rifles at the ready, the scouts of the 86th U.S. Infantry Division. These, he would recall one autumn day more than five decades later, were his first Americans. The day this particular memory flooded back, he was once again resting his eyes on U.S. soldiers. Only this time, he was at Summerall Parade Field, Fort Myer, Virginia. He was inspecting the Joint Force Honor Guard with President Bill Clinton and Secretary of Defense Bill Cohen by his side. For today was his retirement ceremony. General John Shalley Kashvili was stepping down as the 13th Chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff. So how in the heck did he do it? How did that boy whose uh, future looked so unpromising that night on the bridge in Bavaria in 1945, how did he go on to become the highest ranking officer in the world's most powerful military? Well, that's the question that drives my book. And Shannon, if we just uh, pop over to the slides for a sec. Uh, boy on the Bridge, it's the first ever biography on General Shalley, as he liked to be called. Um, now, Shannon, if we can come back to the podium. Um, his is an underdog success story made even more impressive by the fact that of the 20 generals who have served as chairman, Shalley is the only one who is foreign born, the only one who was a draftee, and the only one who became an officer via officer candidate school, perhaps the least glamorous route to earning a commission. Um, and if uh, General Shalley is an unusual American military officer, I'm perhaps an unusual person to have written his biography. Uh, before tackling this project, I, I had really very little uh, experience with the U.S. military. Um, I was a China scholar by trade, and in 2005, after some eight years living in Taiwan, I returned to the United States to take uh, a job as editor at an Asia policy think tank, and uh, Shally was on the board of advisors. Three unusual things about the man caught my eye. I mean, the first, of course, was his dramatic World War II childhood, um, his childhood in Europe. Uh, Shannon, if we can just show this next slide here. This was taken in Warsaw, I think around 1942. And from left to right, uh, there's Missy Shalikashvili, his mother. In the center is Dmitri, uh, his father. 
And in between them is young John looking very cute in his later hosen. Um, and on the other side of Dimitri is John's older brother, Otar, or Joe. Um, many here, Carlisle, will probably know that um, Joe also retired from the US military, the army. He was in special forces. And uh, they retired here, or in retirement, they lived for a spell here in, in Carlisle. Now, the only one missing is the youngest uh, child, uh, Gail or Alexandra. Okay, we can come back to, to the podium. Um, you know, my second kind of surprise was when I learned that he came from royalty. Yeah, royalty. He was born Prince John Malchese David Shali Kashvili, and a long line of Shali Kashvili princes that extended back to at least the year 1400 in Georgia. Um, they had their own uh, illustrious family crest. And Shannon, I'm putting up a picture um, of the family crest. Uh, this is actually the one that hangs in General Shalley's retirement home in, in Steelacombe, Washington. And if you look in the upper right-hand corner, there is a sword uh, over, crossed over a key. Now that's the symbol uh, of the Chamberlain of the Royal Georgian Court. It's a key civil military position in Georgia. And many Shalikashvili princes held that title, including this man. This is General Shalikashvili's uh, great-grandfather, and actually his namesake. It's Ivan, or Jean Shalikashvili. During the Crimean War, he reportedly fought with such distinction that Tsar Alexander II awarded him a gold saber with the inscription, the brave, which he then appended to his name. And uh, Jean Shalikashvili uh, retired as a major general. If we come back to the uh, podium real quick, please. Um, but believe it or not, his mother's side of the family was actually even more impressive. Uh, his mother was a Baltic German countess, and she descended from such luminaries as uh, this person. And uh, Shannon, if we can show this next slide. Uh, this is Adam Johann von Krusenstern. He was also Baltic German, and he was the first admiral in the Imperial Russian Navy to lead a circumnavigation of the globe. His mother was born here. <laughs> That's the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. Well, how did that happen? Well, her mother and aunts served there as ladies-in-waiting to Alex of Hesse, the Grand Duchess, and others at the last imperial, Russian imperial court. Um, and my absolute favorite Shally family photograph is this. Uh, this is Shally's uh, maternal grandparents. Uh, it's his grandfather, who was a Russian count, and of course, his grandmother, who was a Baltic German countess. And they're all decked up for this really opulent costume ball that Tsar Nicholas threw in the winter of 1903. Um, we can come back to the uh, podium now, please. Um, but it was a third unusual thing about General Shally that, that really most mesmerized me, and that was his curious reputation. This is what General Colin Powell said about the man who became his successor as chairman. He's a quiet, decent man and a very hard worker. There is a mistaken notion that you have to have patent-esque qualities to be a great general. You don't need to rant and rave or be an arrogant jerk to be successful. Shally showed that. Uh, Shannon, if we can show this next picture, I think it kind of captures a little bit of, of, of who he, he was. And I'm, I'm going to draw from some news reports from when he was um, nominated for the chairmanship in uh, 1993. He was said to be low-key, self-effacing, a consensus builder who understands teamwork 
and is willing to examine options and adjust to political realities. Someone extraordinarily sensitive in terms of caring for people and who is a master in balancing firmness with compassion. You can come back to the uh, podium, uh, please, Shannon. Thank you. Um, I came across uh, a, a news article. In retirement, General Shalley was asked what his greatest weakness was. And his response, I don't like confrontation. Um, th this flabbergasted me because, I mean, he had such a stellar career in the US Armed Forces as uh, SACIR, Supreme Allied Commander Europe, the military head of NATO. I mean, his job was to kind of herd all the squabbling chiefs of the European chiefs of defense in one direction. Um, and you might say the same for his time as chairman, you know, working with all the different service branches. And then, of course, having to go on and represent them on the fractious field of national security policymaking. Um, I mean, how, just how could it be? So that's when I knew I needed to understand who he really was and how did he become that kind of a person? Um, so in 2010, I did what was perhaps unthinkable to some. Uh, I was single then. I quit my full-time job. I gave up my health insurance. And uh, not long after that, I put my belongings in storage, uh, packed up the car, and just set out on an open-ended research odyssey. Um, all told, I've traveled to some three dozen cities on two continents. I've cannibalized two restricted archives, uh, the chairman's papers and the special collections at National Defense University, as well as some Shali Kashvili archives in Washington State. Um, I've interviewed well over 300 people, many multiple times, uh, includes General Shali himself, his immediate and extended family, childhood friends in Europe, classmates in America, and, and of course, people who knew him while he wore the uniform from when he was a, a private in the late 50s all the way up to you know, fellow VIPs from the 1990s. This includes uh, Bill Clinton, Madeleine Albright, um, Bill Perry, uh, Colin Powell, and others. And now, after almost 10 years of sacrifice, <laughs> the book is out. Um, it required multiple stints of house sitting, couch surfing, and even living out of my car. Um, but it's now here. And Shannon, I just wanted to put uh, the, the uh, picture back up. Uh, Boy on the Bridge, it's out with uh, the University Press of Kentucky in association with the AUSA, uh, part of their American Warrior series. Uh, we can come back to the, the podium, uh, please, Shannon. Um, make no mistake, this is no traditional military biography that details one general officer's grand accomplishments. Now, The Boy on the Bridge is different. It's about the journey, not the destination. It's nuanced character study, not just of General Shalley, but of five key people who had a huge impact on him. That would, of course, be his father, his mother, his maternal grandmother, and a maternal great-aunt, and even a high school girlfriend. It reads like a novel. It's chock full of cliffhangers, flashbacks, and jump forwards. It's an engaging and accessible look at how nature and nurture combined to create that most unusual of a leader, someone both genuinely caring and supremely effective. Now, what do I mean when I say he was effective? John Shalley had absolutely mastered the art of working with diverse groups of people on the thorniest issues to hammer out productive common consensus. 
Just let me repeat that. John Shalley had absolutely mastered the art of working with diverse groups of people on the toughest issues and hammered out a common constructive consensus. Put differently, his forte was in unifying people. This was true whether he was involved in policymaking, negotiating, or in carrying out missions, orders, and tasks. Take, for example, his command in 1991 of Operation Provide Comfort. And Shannon, I've put a slide up here. Maybe we can um, let everybody see. Um, operation Provide Comfort was an unprecedented humanitarian operation that directly involved not just some 20,000 troops from 13 different countries, but also more than 50 IOs, NGOs, and PBOs suddenly thrown together. Under Shali's leadership, the task force rescued well over half a million Kurdish refugees who found themselves suddenly trapped along the inhospitable mountain peaks of the Iraqi-Turkish border in the aftermath of Gulf War I. General Colin Powell, who was chairman at the time, would later say that Shali Kashvili worked a miracle in those mountains. You can come back to the podium, please. Um, little wonder then, um, Colin Powell pulled Shally to the Pentagon to serve as assistant, um, uh, assistant to the chairman. And in that capacity, uh, he worked with diverse stakeholders from multiple countries to help secure loose nukes in the former Soviet Union republics. And then there were his achievements as both SACUR, head of NATO, military head of NATO, and then as chairman. This included getting numerous competing stakeholders together to finally bring an end to the bloody carnage in Bosnia. And he also got the then 16 member nations of, of NATO, as well as Russia, to buy into the peaceful expansion of NATO via the Partnership for Peace Initiative and the subsequent transformation of militaries in Central Europe. And let's not forget that Shally helped manage the steep downsizing of US troop levels necessitated by the end of the Cold War, all while bringing together the remaining service members in a way that simultaneously upgraded both US military capability and readiness. So he was a unifier, and a book about a unifier couldn't be more timely. General Jim Mattis and others have warned about the red-hot tribalism that now permeates our nation's politics, how this us versus them mentality now constitutes the biggest threat to American democracy. So today, I wanted to take my book on Shally's American success story and pull from it uh, some of the key strengths that made Shally such an effective unifier. These strengths can be divided into two categories, abilities and motivation. Let's start with abilities. General Shalley had many important skills and characteristics that made him a great unifier. Some were innate, all were honed over time. The bedrock skill was competency. He learned this at his very first posting, when 2nd Lieutenant Shalley Kashvili, an artilleryman, was assigned to lead a platoon of infantry soldiers with the 1st Battle Group, 9th Infantry Division in Alaska. As was his want, he'd later give credit to somebody else, to his sergeant, Rudy Grice. Grice knew that if our platoon was going to be good at the countless things that would make us a finely honed warfighting machine, then he had to teach me and practice with me so when I walked that gun line, the soldiers would know that I knew more than them. That if asked how to cut a mortar fuse, there was no doubt I would know the answer. 
just as I would know if there was too much play in the sight mount on that mortar. Know your stuff cold. It's a simple maxim, but as we'll see, Shally combined an absolute commitment to competency with other strengths to accomplish some pretty sophisticated things. Another skill he had in spades was holistics, understanding how the parts relate to the whole. He was naturally good at it. Uh, as a child, he would build model airplanes. An aptitude test he took at the end of high school uh, pegged him as an engineer. Perhaps no surprise, he graduated with a BA in mechanical engineering. And we can go back to that first assignment in Alaska. He also served as a forward observer, accompanying an infantry company on maneuvers and directing supporting mortar fire. His bosses praised his holistic acumen, including his ability to understand the larger flow of infantry battle in order to determine target locations and assist with fire support plans. Just as they praised his ability to conduct reconnaissance for future positions, which of course had to be done in conjunction with the plans of other supported units. During his career, Shally's skill in holistics would be made exponentially more effective, particularly because of one very unique Shally characteristic. He had a sensitivity to complexity. Shally Kashvili did not see the world in black and white. He approached issues looking for the nuanced ways things were both similar and different. He was comfortable with ambiguity. He understood that things could be fluid. I'd argue that part of this sensitivity stems from his unique family background. The identities, loyalties, and actions of family members were often a microcosm of the larger swirl of the complex socio-political histories of Europe. Let's take his father, Dimitri. He was, he was a Georgian patriot in spades. Uh, but perversely, he spoke little Georgian. Why? Well, as with most Georgian elite, they had been co-opted into the Imperial Russian nobility. And so Dmitri was actually studying in an elite school in St. Petersburg when World War I broke out. And he readily volunteered to fight for the Tsar. And that would be the first of four uniforms that he would wear. Um, his next chance came when Georgia earned its independence. He rushed home to take the officer's exam, passed, and then put on a Georgian military uniform. However, when Russia re-annexed Georgia, he was out in the cold. He eventually make, made his way to Poland, where he became a foreign contract officer with the Polish Cavalry. And actually, I'm gonna put up uh, this next slide. It was in the almost 20 years that he lived in Warsaw that he met his wife, Missy, who was also um, you know, made, made stateless with the collapse of this, uh, um, the Imperial Russian government. Um, they met and they got married and had three kids. Um, but a condition for uh, being a foreign contract officer was you could not become a Polish citizen. You couldn't, your family couldn't. And that's how John Shalley uh, was born stateless. Um, when Hitler invaded Poland, uh, Dmitry's unit, of course, sought to defend Poland. Um, but Dmitry would eventually become a, a prisoner of war of the Germans. And there's a great part of the book that captures this dramatic tale his wife actually manages to rescue him from the POW camp. Um, uh, we can come back to the, to the, to the podium now. A um, few years later, when the German war effort is flagging, they finally let these um, ethnic formations come into being to fight on, on Germany's behalf. 
and against his wife's staunch protest, uh, Dimitri ends up then putting on a German uniform. Uh, his hope, of course, is that he'll help defeat Russia, which will then free up um, his homeland of Georgia. At one point, his, he'd be assigned to a unit that was sent to Italy. And uh, knowing that the writing was on the wall for the, the German uh, war effort, Dimitri actually approaches some Italian partisans and says, look, we'll, we'll come fight with you. We'll help you fight against uh, Mussolini on the condition that we're not asked to fight against Germany. And an agreement was struck. Um, not long after that, British officers come into the area and um, Dimitri's unit surrenders. And there's this great scene in the book where you, you talk about complexity and nuance and ambiguity. Uh, the British officers didn't know what to make of these people. I mean, this was a, a Georgian, ethnic Georgian group. Uh, and of course, George, Georgia then was part of Russia and was thus on Britain's side. Um, many of them actually spoke Russian, um, but they were wearing German uniforms. And then on top of that, on the German for uniforms was a patch of Italian partisans. You know, it just, it just made no sense. Um, and one more quick anecdote about this kind of shifting fluid identity. After he became a prisoner of war, he was shuttled around Italy, like on marches and on back of trucks and trains to, to get to the, the camp that he'd be, he'd be put in. Um, and at one point, he encounters these units displaying uh, Polish banners, and he's excited. You know, his mind leapt back to September 1939 when he led some wonderful Polish soldiers into battle against the Germans. Uh, and he says something like, though the Poles marching before me were on the conqueror's side and I was but a vanquished POW, I felt joy seeing them. I wished them well. I even prayed for them. So I think we can begin to see why, why Shally, even from an early age, kind of understood the, how things could be complicated. And um, I would say that his, his sensitivity to complexity became even more powerful when, when coupled with yet another skill he had. And that he, he was very good at summarizing complex ideas and presenting key takeaways simply and clearly to a wide array of people. After Alaska, he was sent to Fort Bliss in Texas, uh, and he had two weeks to kind of bone up on missilery, including nuclear missiles, and then he was thrown into the classroom to teach to others. He was also made a briefer, and before he left Fort Bliss, he was actually, he was made chief of the VIP briefing section. Why? Well, many of the skills he then also uh, displayed at his next posting, at the 32nd ADCOM in Germany. Many of the manuals that Captain Shali Kashvili created for managing his nuclear-capable unit were held up as models and copied all across US Army Europe. If you read his OER, he was, bosses praised his brilliance of his briefings and presentations to audiences ranging from enlisted personnel to the highest ranking officers of all services. You know, because of these skills, he was sent to England to pre present an air defense briefings. He was um, uh, sent to a conference in London, you know, where um, they were shaping air defense doctrine. Shally had another set of skills, which I could go on and on about. He was a people person. It started with the introduction. Call me Shally, he would say. This is John Shally. He didn't want people worried about how am I going to pronounce this jawbreaker of a name. He was the type of person who gave credit to others, took the blame for himself. 
Though invariably busy, he was known for always taking time to talk with others, not the least of those uh, who are far down the, the food chain. And he was a listener. Admiral Mike Border would say, he has this way of listening to you, and while you are talking, he makes you feel you are the only person in the world. He didn't micromanage. He had this way of making people automatically feel like the, that Shally trusted them. And so often I would hear, and I just immediately trusted him in return. In terms of decision making, he was very good at making important people feel they hadn't lost even when their ideas weren't adopted. And he had this way of convincing people based upon the things that they cared about. Put all these skills together and he could work very well with some difficult people. Uh, he would twice serve as assistant commander under Commander uh, Butch uh, Saint, Crosby Butch Saint. Um, and if uh, Shally was known for not liking confrontation, many felt that uh, General Saint uh, thrived on it. And in fact, when I interviewed him, he told me that such was his reputation when he was walking the halls of the Pentagon and people saw him you know, coming their way, they would jump out of the way like fish from the prow of a motorboat. Um, but Shally, somebody told me, who, who definitely was in a place to know, Shally had this way of uh, um, turning Butch Saint 178 degrees without ever disagreeing with him. Finally, we come to Mystique. I mean, it's that accent, right? He had this aristocratic bearing, ramrod posture, princely stride. I interviewed Lieutenant General Retired Tom Jaco. Um, Jaco was here uh, in Shally's seminar at the Army War College from 77 to 78. And um, Jaco said, it was the way he entered the room, the way he held his head, it caught your eye, it commanded your attention. You know, and, and he spoke of this aura that Shally gave off as a World War II immigrant. In so many instances, John had been there, done that as a child, Jaco said. Yet Shally would never speak of his background in a group setting. John was tight-lipped like World War II heroes. All those young military guys were in awe. He became some kind of myth. And finally, Jaco, Jaco concluded, he had the ability to listen, which carried the day. He would never try to impress you. He just asked the right question or no question. When he did open his mouth, he said what was important. But why was it that Shally said everything that he said was important or what he said was important? And here we need to circle back to competency. Throughout his career, Shally was known and respected for attacking complex and challenging problems by immersing himself into the details and convincing with facts rather than emotion. Like in helping determine the army position on the reduction of medium range nuclear missiles in Europe in the 1980s. General Robert Riscasi, his boss at the time, recalled the moderating influence Shally had on nuclear missile reduction, saying, he just brought logic to the table. He's relaxed, non-intrusive. His forte is knowledge. So let's step back and put all these things together. Competency, holistic understanding, appreciation of complexity, the ability to simplify complexity and co communicate clear takeaways to a wide audience great people skills, and a natural mystique. No wonder he had the ability to unify. A quote from this same period, Dr. Perry Smith, the Air Force planner, when Shally was the deputy army planner, said, we negotiated on a number of inter-service issues. 
I remember him as a quiet-spoken man who was well-prepared, was scrupulously honest, tried to find the best solution for the nation rather than just for the army, and who was not afraid to admit he didn't know something. I like to emphasize the line, Shally always seemed to want to find the best solution for the nation. You know, many people who had the skills that Shally had wouldn't necessarily have been a unifier. You know, many people will favor one group or parochial interest, usually their own, or at least their own, by focusing on their career, on politicking, on climbing the ladder. Not Shali Kashvili. He had a reputation for being a team player. I could present a lot um, of examples, but let me just take one uh, from battalion command. Uh, Shali commanded the 184th uh, the, in the 9th Infantry Division at Fort Lewis. And for those who might not be aware, of course, um, battalion command is an officer's first real chance uh, to lead and manage a significant uh, amount of manpower and resources. Uh, and it's important to do well as a battalion commander if you, if you hope to become a general officer. So I interviewed this one person who was chosen as Shally's, uh, the representative from Shally's battalion to go to division um, in the running of this emergency scenario. But he was told he had to go report to Shally first. Under no circumstances, Shally told him, are you to give any information to our battalion that will give us an unfair advantage. Some may try to pull rank on you, and I know you won't let them. If they try, let me know, and I'll handle it. Many people did ask. All got their butts chewed. So why then did Shally develop into this kind of unifying team player? To shed light on this, let me raise one last Shally characteristic. And I'm going to do so through another anecdote. When Shally was a three-star, he was assigned to be uh, General Saint's assistant commander at US Army Europe in Heidelberg. I interviewed a woman who was a housing intern. And it was her responsibility to get his quarters ready. Now, the previous three-star had vacated late, and she and her team were little time to turn the house around. So on the day of his arrival, they're inside, and they're, they're scrambling. Uh, while she was uh, scrubbing away in the kitchen, she happened to glance out the window and saw somebody sitting on the curb. It was three-star <laughs> three Shali Kashvili. Uh, all nervous, she ran outside. Sir, sir, why didn't you just come in? That's OK, he said. You all seem to be pretty busy. I thought I'd just stay out of the way. Joe Shally Kashvili would say this about his brother. John certainly has had ambition all his life, but ego is something in this context where you try to bring yourself to the forefront or to make yourself the centerpiece of things. He did not have that. Why didn't John Shally have this? Why didn't he have an ego need? To find the answer to this, we need to shift from looking at skills and characteristics and go to that second general source of Shally's strength as a unifier, motivation. That's because Shally had plenty of internal drive to be a unifier, and these motivations greatly outweighed any narrow self-interest. A big part of this was his strong desire to reduce conflict. Just ask General West Clark, who was the J5 on the joint staff when Shally was chairman. Shally's genius, Clark told me, was that he could always find something, an idea, a strategy, a wrinkle, to prevent destructive conflict and to bring people together and advance the mission. Why such drive? 
Well, it makes sense if you consider Shally's childhood. Seeing people killed had been part of my growing up, Shally once reflected. He lived in Warsaw, the most bombed city of World War II, and then an end of Germany. Of course, he knew firsthand the devastation that conflict could unleash. When his Jewish friends began disappearing, young Shally quickly learned how an entire race could be targeted for annihilation. And of course, as, as mentioned earlier, during the Warsaw Uprising, his family's apartment was dive-bombed while they were in it. And they were forced to live underground with no running water, you know, no sanitation, um, unsteady food supply. Um, I mean, imagine the impact on a kid of having to witness, you know, just to survive, his family had to pay others to help carry their grandmother's stretcher through the sewers of Warsaw. The forces of nationalism that tore Europe apart also caused great strife within his own family. One day, his maternal grandmother read an article in the Polish newspaper that listed the names of thousands of Polish officers killed by the Russians in the 1940 Katyn Forest massacre. That's not possible, she explained, uh, exclaimed. Now, you need to recall her allegiance both to her Russian husband and her own service at the Russian Imperial Court. Dmitry Shalikashvili, however, was probably livid. I mean, he emphatically knew that it was true. You know, when his unit knew it was time to surrender um, in the fight against uh, Germany, at that point, Russia had also come into Poland looking to grab some land, and um, his unit purposefully found Germans to, to uh, surrender to because they knew that they would be tortured and probably killed if caught by the Russians. Or take, you know, Dmitry's own decision to put on a German military uniform over the angry objections from his wife. His children would later call it a deal with the devil, you know, something that, that of course, devastated the family. So Shally understood the immense price that conflict could exact. And it's probably no surprise he took to heart that the best chance for a stable peace necessitated that the interests of others needed to seriously be taken into account. There was no room for wishful thinking based on narrow self-interest. But it just wasn't the ugliness of witnessing war firsthand that motivated Shally to be concerned with the interests, welfares of others. Some people emerge, emerge from suffering with a dark view of human nature, not Shally. He once had a commander who said, people are no damn good, so when they screw up, it's okay, because I expect them to. Shally disagreed. He felt that people were good, but sometimes you just had to uh, help, you had to show them the way. Where did this positivity about human character come from? Part of it, I'd argue, is from the aristocratic ideal of noblesse oblige. With great privilege comes great responsibility. And in the book, there's countless examples of his grandmother, his great aunt, parents, and other aristocrats using their position and resources to aid the less fortunate. Moreover, during the dark days of war, Shally also saw society's more humane side. Like when they fled Poland, relatives in Germany took them in. And then there's Winifred Luthi, an ex-wife of a distant relative who had earlier emigrated to America. When Winifred learned of their situation in Germany, she sent badly needed care packages to the Shally family, and then later enlisted her brother to make the family's dream of US immigration possible. He arranged passage for them, prepared housing, furniture, clothes, got jobs for Dimitri and Missy. 
He didn't know us from beans, Shali Kashvili would later voice his appreciation. Let me relate one anecdote that captures the duality of, this, of Shali's wartime upbringing, seeing both the good and the bad, sometimes even at the same time. Uh, Shannon, I'm gonna put up um, this picture. This is outside the Shally's uh, uh, apartment in Warsaw. It's a little triangular piece of grass where the kids would play. That would be young John on the right and his brother Otar or Joe on the left. Um, one day during the uh, Warsaw Uprising, um, there were these Polish partisans that were escaping the fighting in Old Town. And they actually emerged from the cellars right outside the Shally's house. And when I interviewed uh, Joe, you know, he told me just watching it that the, the Polish partisans had brought their war dead with them, you know, despite the risk. And he just thought how amazingly humane these people are under the harshest of circumstances still caring, you know, for their war dead. Um, and this triangular patch of grass you see thus became a cemetery with the adults buried in the center and the children at the corners. We can come back to the podium, uh, please, Shannon. I'd argue that seeing the extremes of human behavior as a child, both the ugly and the beautiful, helped instill in Shali Kashvili a unique characteristic, something I call constructive open-mindedness, a propensity to neither downplay the risk of bad things happening, nor to prematurely dismiss possibilities for a better world. This constructive open-mindedness, I'd argue, was part of what made him so skilled at finding real opportunities to reduce conflict. There's one last pair of motivations that made him a great unifier. The first was a desire for belonging. I mean, just think about, think about it. Imagine being born stateless in Poland, you know, living there until you're seven or eight and suddenly being yanked to Germany where you had to learn a new language and a new culture. And Shally's mother, Missy, she threw the kids into school on day one. You know, there was no lollygagging. You know, and then wait a few years, boom, now he's in America and having to learn a new language and yet new, new cultures. And there's this great scene when the, the Shallies finally meet uh, the Luthi family. They go into their, their living room and uh, the, the parents introduce the kids. The kids uh, bow, click their heads, and then leave the room. Uh, and when Otar, the older brother, came, uh, he actually brought along white gloves and a regimental swagger stick. I mean, just think of the, the cultural assimilation that needs to occur. And, you know, it, it, it makes sense that Shali would be grateful to the, to the US uh, for being the only country that finally gave citizenship to his family. Um, it makes sense that during his military career, he would have that desire to, part of why he was doing what he's doing was to, to, to pay back uh, the United States. Shali had even more personal reasons for not centering on himself. Early in life, uh, he'd been deeply hurt by multiple loved ones. There was his father's decision to fight for Germany, of course. Um, he had a high school girlfriend who left him without a word. And then as a captain, he finally met uh, this beautiful woman from uh, East Germany. They were taking classes at Texas together. Uh, they got married and she was pregnant and he was on the cusp of finally having his, his rooted sense of home. Um, well, Gunheld, his wife, um, began to have stomach problems. It was, and turned out it was stage four uh, stomach cancer. Uh, the baby was born prematurely and died and a few days later, um, and his wife followed not long after. Um, and I really argue it's at this point where Shally just said, you know what, from now on, the military is my family. 
because it's not going to die on me. It's not going to leave me. It's not going to betray me. His own career was not going to be the primary reason why he wore the uniform. Perhaps paradoxically, while yes, he found a sense of home in being American, Shelley also learned firsthand from his father and other old world relatives that identity isn't always a straightforward thing. Just ask former Sackier, General Jack Galvin. Galvin was the one who okayed Shelley uh, to be General Saint's deputy at US Army Europe. He was the one who picked Shelley <clears throat> to lead Operation Provide Comfort. And then he backed Shelley to be his successor as Sackier. Galvin told me, Shally Kashvili was lucky to have that name. Things would have been quite different if his name was Jones or Smith. It was because of his accent, because he was a brother, because he was a European dealing with European things that he was readily embraced. President Bill Clinton would say that one of the proudest moments of his presidency was standing with Shally in Warsaw to celebrate NATO enlargement and to welcome the people of Shally's birthplace back to the family of freedom. I guess you could say that for Shally, being part of and caring for a larger family was what defined him as a person. And thanks to the fact that his unique skill set and motivations made him such a great unifier, he was able to increasingly take care of a larger and larger family. In closing, I wanted to thank the US Army Heritage and Education Center for this opportunity uh, to share some insights into one of the US Army's best and brightest officers. Um, Shally's story offers more than just insights on unified leadership, of course. It's also a great piece of global history, from the fall of Imperial Russia to the birth of the post-Cold War world. It's a captivating story of one family struggle to survive one of the most turbulent times in modern world history. And of course, it's also a great American success story, one in which, yes, the nice guy actually does finish first and the United States and the world actually became a better place because of it. Thank you very much. All right, thank you so much, sir. Um, so Dr. Marble, as you've been speaking tonight, uh, uh, we've had several questions come in uh, over social media and of course through our email. Um, and of course, uh, everyone out there listening, uh, if you hear a question or if you have a question from, uh, uh, from throughout the lecture tonight, uh, please feel free to go ahead and go into our Facebook page Again, just search U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center or USAHEC on Facebook. Uh, our page will pop up and just hit the message button. Uh, you can send us a message. We'll get it right here. But we've got a good 10 minutes left that we can uh, do some Q&A. So if something pops in your head, go ahead and send it to us. In fact, the first question we have tonight, uh, Dr. Marble, is coming straight from, uh, uh, from Facebook. Uh, Bringing things up to up to today, the question comes in actually from a professor over at the War College. Any insight into what General Shalikashvili thinks or might think about the recent resurgence of competition with uh, with Russia? Um, I think I would respectfully <laughs> decline to answer that question. Uh, my book really looked at how you know Shali became chairman. You know, what, what were the unique set of skills and abilities he had? And I focused a lot less on actual policy. Um, apologize. Um, okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on to the next question then. Um, this one might fit a little bit better with, uh, with the book in this case. Um, can you go a little bit more into some of the primary influencers uh, into uh, General Shalakashvili's uh, um, 
uh, you know, as he came up in the army, uh, specifically any anecdotes, any senior officers, uh, any uh, any colleagues that really influenced him and helped to turn him into the general officer that uh, that you ended up writing about. Uh, that's a, a very good question, and there's a, a couple different ways to look at it. Um, one is Shalley actually would be asked if he had a mentor, and he said no, he never did. But there was one person who stood out in his mind more than others uh, because when that person taught you something, they held you 100% accountable to, to what you were supposed to be doing. Uh, and he learned the most from, from that person. And that was uh, General uh, Butch Saint. Um, but if you look at the people he talked about warmly, um, you know, his first assignment, uh, when, when Charlie was drafted, he wasn't sure if he wanted a military career. Um, and he's just, just kind of hemming and hawing, going back and forth. Um, but then he gets assigned to Alaska, right? And it's 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 great. It's you're out in the wilderness. He loved to to, to ski and hike, and he he takes his unit out. He was he led one of the the, the the northernmost fire missions, I think, in the U.S. Army history at that time. He got the chance to lead it. Um, he became for three months. He was the aide to uh, General Wheeler, who was uh, head of all the Army forces up there. And he kind of felt of Wheeler was his, his uh, Wheeler and his daughter and his wife. They were Shally's second family. And I think they shared a lot of similar um, thinking about uh, being open-minded and caring about soldiers. Um, who else would, would uh, Sergeant Grice, you know, his, his sergeant from that time. Um, yeah. Excellent. So uh, we have actually brought it, got in a few questions here that are they're very similar. I'm going to roll them up into one into a very simple question. What was General Shalakishvili's biggest failure and what did he learn from it? Hmm. Well, when I asked him what his biggest failure was, um, I think he, I think he felt really bad that he was unable to do more in Rwanda. Um, but the, 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 um, the kind of the, the political world at the time would, would not allow for it. Um, in terms of what his greatest accomplishment was, there's two different ways of looking at it. Uh, if you look at it from kind of uh, grand political security uh, history, um, you know, it would have to be operation provide comfort in the sense of doing things, you know, for people and actually being able to help out. Um, but I was actually here at the Army War College uh, at the library here at, at AHEC doing some research years ago. And somebody came up to me and said, uh, I heard you're writing a book on, on General Shalley. Well, you know, his brother lived here for a while. And one day I went up to him and I said, hey, what, what would your brother say was his biggest accomplishment? And, um, and Joe told him, well, what I think my brother would say was his greatest accomplishment was um, when he was Butch Saint's deputy at U.S. Army Europe, they were redoing the, the PX in Heidelberg. And uh, Shally was really proud of the fact that when they laid out the parking lot, they, they divided it up into sections uh, based on animals and had flags of giraffes and elephants and whatnot. And that was so the children could help their parents find their car after they, after they went shopping at the PX. So Shally could operate on those two different levels uh, at the same time. And it speaks a lot to how he really cared about people as well as, as the mission. Excellent, excellent. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, your specific research approach. Got a few questions in uh, about your research. 
So let's start off with uh, what did you find being the toughest parts of this project for you? The toughest thing, General Shalley was really tight-lipped. He did not talk a lot about himself. I mean, part of it was the way he interacted with other people. It was a strategy, right? Make other people comfortable. Um, but he was also a very private person. And it was hard to really get at, you know, I, I knew what his reputation was, but I didn't really know if the man inside the reputation or behind the reputation, and I had glimmers of it, you know, but, and of course in the military, especially the higher up you go, the less, the less you talk about yourself. Um, and so a lot of the people I met really did not know um, either about his history or, you know, many didn't know that he, he was ever married before um, his second wife. Um, and it wasn't until I came across, uh, after his death, one of his uh, high school girlfriends, or his high school girlfriend got in touch with me. And she had met him at a very unique time uh, when he was transitioning from the old world to the new world. And, and she was kind of an outsider and he was an outsider. And a lot of the things that she described about him were things that I began, I was picking up kind of in little bits and pieces all around. But it was really hard. The, the only written thing that I've seen where he wrote anything personal was after he had um, his really big stroke in 2004, and part of the therapy was to kind of write about how your stroke affected you, and that's that's the only kind of personal, really personal thing I have that he's written. Um, All right. Um, the next question has come in is a, a little bit on the same uh, same theme there, but um, it, throughout your research uh, and, and understanding that uh, that he. Uh, might not have been the most loose-lipped as far as his own experiences went. Um, did you run up against anybody who had um, very specific negative memories of, uh, of uh, General Shalakashvili? And also, was there anybody who uh, specifically had some extremely positive personal memories, uh, preferably, of course, coming from other Army officers? I would say early on in, in his career, there were some people who, who thought that at times he could be haughty and he was there to be a general. Um, and I got an, heard enough of those kind of things that I think it made sense. I mean, part of it was just he had this aristocratic air and, and some people thought he was arrogant because of it. Um, but I think he was also kind of, you know, he was, we were all born rough, right? And slowly develop into who we become. But after you know, after his his first wife dies and his and his child dies, you never hear him you know talking grandiose about his his future or or criticizing other people. Um, okay, covered. sure, sure, yeah, that uh, that covers it. Um, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, here we are in uh, at the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Can you give us a little bit more insight into the effect and the influence of the Army War College on uh, on the rest of his career? Uh, well, I do know that right after the Army War College, he was um, assigned to Italy. Um, let me just make sure I get everything, everything right. Um, oh, this is a little, bu little while later. Um, maybe that's not the best example. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. This is not something that I can. Oh. No, it's not something I could speak very well to. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay, sure, sure. Well, we have time for one more question before we tie things up here. Uh, and uh, the, the question came through is, what was his favorite job? If you, if you went down through all of his assignments, which one was his favorite and specifically why? Oh, well, I guess there's two answers. I, I think he really liked commanding the 9th ID because, 
you know, he that's when like the biggest, highest level unit he commanded directly. And he just, he loved being with people. Um, and he liked being with the soldiers. And I think it was, uh, he was disappointed that he never then got to a bit, uh, to command a corps, because uh, he went from there to um, being General Saint's deputy. Um, in terms of like a personal experience, and I mean, it has to be Operation Provide Comfort, because you know there's these stories when Charlie's over there and he's playing with the Kurdish refugee kids. I mean, how could he not think of his own childhood? And it's you think here's a former refugee <laughs> who's here rescuing other refugees, and uh, to be there and he. He was in his element, you know, working with uh, 13 different nations and all these IOs and PBOs and NGOs. I mean, he was a great working with people and unifying people, and he got to do it and do it all for for a very good cause. Um, all right, excellent. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's about all the time we have tonight. Of course, we want to extend a great big thank you to Dr. Marble uh, for coming out and speaking with us tonight. Of course, uh, I'm sure that you can find his book at uh, your favorite bookseller or, Amazon. Uh, <laughs> or, or come to another one of his lectures when, uh, when we start to have more live lectures. Um, so thanks for joining, for us uh, joining us tonight. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.